So I want to just thank you all so much for inviting me to share a little bit about our program and, and how we can work in conjunction with you all to help support people in the moment that you are encountering that are experiencing mental health and substance use concerns. So our program is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, just like all of you all are. Our goal is to close gaps in crisis help when New Mexicans need it most, and we want to do this in a timely and effective manner, ensuring continuous quality professional behavioral and wellness services. And we want to work with uh, the community to ensure that we're bringing light and hope to those in need during their darkest hour. We are accredited and recognized. We are a behavioral health provider, so we do follow HIPAA standards. We are accredited by CARF, the American Association of Suicidology, and we are a National Suicide Prevention Lifeline provider, which means that if people call the NSPL instead of NMCAL from a 505 or a 575 area code, we are one of three providers here in New Mexico that answer those calls. Um, we want to encourage you to think about using us because we are open all the time and the counselors that answer on our crisis line are licensed professionals. They have their bachelor's degree or their master's degree. And then we also have a secondary program called our Certified Peer Support Warm Line. And that's open from 3.30 to 11.30 every day to take calls on and from 6 p.m. to 11 p.m. to take text messages on. We, what we want to encourage public safety to encounter us is through our crisis line though since it is 24-7 and our crisis line counselors are used to talking to law enforcement. We do answer for over 350 accounts nationwide and MCAL and the warm line are just two of those 350 accounts that we answer as a part of our larger organization. So all of our staff are trained in supporting people uh, in the least restrictive possible way in order to help people to think about how to Think about engaging themselves in a way that doesn't require police involvement, that doesn't require um, uh, harming themselves or somebody else. And if for some reason somebody is at that point where um, we're worried that they're going to hurt themselves or somebody else or they're at risk of being harmed, we do engage with police officers and reach out to, and ask for your support. But what I'm here today is to talk with you guys about thinking about interjecting us as a part of your normal standards and call processes when you're out in the community talking with community members that are experiencing mental health concerns. Because as we know, most people who are um, out in the community that you guys are responding to via dispatch are experiencing some sort of mental health concern, whether it's a diagnosis or whether it's just in that moment, they're experiencing anxiety and depression. And sometimes all they really need to do is talk to somebody and it doesn't necessarily warrant a law enforcement engagement, but 911 is the only number that they know. And so that's the number that they call. And so we want to work with you guys to encourage you to think about how to let your community members know that there is an alternative resource. Let your community members know that, you know, if they need somebody to talk to, that we're here to hear them. And that we want you as police officers to know that, um, this is a service that we want to support you in. So we want it to be an easy engagement for you. So if you happen to choose to engage with us, then you can say, this is officer so-and-so, I'm calling the such and such, they're experiencing blah, 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 can you talk with them, hand the phone over, you're done. Um, that's high level, right? What we want you to think about is 
what our clinicians do is we complete an assessment once we have the phone and we're talking with a community member. We develop safety plans, we connect them with community resources, we host interventions if needed, we get them to think about who else can help them, we get them to think about um, what they need to do to think about helping themselves be on the call, um, we review the commitments that they've made with us during the call, and then we document every call because we do know that sometimes our callers call back and sometimes it helps us to have um, the account history of that caller to best support them in those moments. Uh, we don't require demographics, but we do request demographics, and that's so is that we know that if for some reason there is an urgent or emergent need and we do need to request law enforcement to come out, then we need to know where to send them. And so if all we have is a phone number, then we um, work with Bernalillo County Sheriff uh, 911 Dispatch Center to ping that phone if we have the phone number, if they didn't give us any demographic information, because we are not law enforcement, we don't have that capability on our program to ping the phone, uh, but we do have that relationship. If somebody so chooses not to give a phone number, then uh, there's no way that we would be able to support that person. But a lot of times when people are engaging with us, they are reaching out because they are in crisis and they want some sort of help and they just don't know what to do. Most of the times people are calling for a variety of different reasons. You know, they could be having thoughts of suicide or homicide, which a lot of times is what people think a crisis line is, but we're more than just suicide and homicidal thoughts. We're also, people are thinking about hurting themselves or if they're using substances or misusing substances, if they are struggling with any form of addiction, uh, whether it's food, sex, tobacco, gambling, exercise, work, or relationships. They're experiencing depression, but they're not at that place where they're contemplating harming themselves or somebody else yet. Maybe they have an eating disorder. Maybe they're grieving because they've lost their job, their um, a loved one, a pet, a home. You know, they're grieving over something that they have lost. Um, maybe they've experienced a sexual assault in some way, shape, or form, and, and they are experiencing some trauma as a result of that. Maybe they're experiencing some other form of abuse, like domestic violence or um, various other abuses that happen within our community. Maybe there's somebody who's isolating and, and just doesn't know how to ask for help and doesn't know how to reach support beyond their home. And they're calling us just to see how to take that next step in their own level of care. Um, you know, there is a variety of reasons that people call us, and, and those are just a few. The way that we insist, assist callers is we evaluate them, we gain an understanding of what they are calling about and what the intentions of the call is. You know, sometimes people will call and they'll say they need one thing, but they, as you begin talking to them, more unfolds and it's truly about something entirely um, other than what they originally identified. And so it's up to our counselors, who are trained professionals, to support people and helping them understand how to help themselves, not only in this moment, but beyond the call. Because we know that we are an intervention in a person's care and that we are not a replacement of services. So we ensure that we are building rapport by actively listening, asking open-ended questions, and utilizing um, uh, the way that we can support people in a way that it creates people wanting to share information and wanting to engage supports and wanting to find ways to help themselves and find ways to get other people to think about helping them also. And um, we make sure that we are keeping callers focused on the here and now. We use a strength-based approach to do this, you know, thinking about um, 
a lot of times callers know how to help themselves, but when they're in distress, they can't think about those things. So using uh, the words that our callers are using and repeating them to our callers, helping them remember that they are capable and they are worth it and that they don't have to remain in this place of helplessness, hopelessness, and worthlessness, but they called us for support and we want to help support them. Um, with the ways that we support them are using a very solutions-focused therapy um, and making sure that we are working on helping them change their behaviors and encouraging them to begin healthy support systems and stopping the negative support systems. And we do this using motivational interviewing a lot of times through our process. Our goal during the call is to get them from um, the higher level that they're experiencing to some sort of lower level of distress. You know, they might not go to no distress, but at the end of the call, we wanna make sure that they are in a place where they are not at risk of, of harming themselves or somebody else or of being harmed, and that they are able to continue on for another hour, another minute, another day, another week, whatever that might mean. Because we do have callers that sometimes call us multiple times a day or multiple times a week um, just to check in as a part of their wellness recovery plan. You know, when we are working with people, we're thinking about how do we engage them with other people? How do we um, create a safety plan to support people in the moment so is that um, they can think about what they need to do to help themselves uh, we need to encourage them to think about, did something happen before this event happened? So is that um, you can think about, you know, it, it wasn't necessarily about that your dog ate your homework, but that you um, your wife left you and you are at risk of losing your job because you're late, because you have to stay up late and you're staying up late and, and then you're using substances in order to you know, get your day going and, and you're a little bit on edge as a result and so you're not performing at your best. So, you know, thinking about your entire life as a whole and um, what other present physical circumstances might be happening within your home that could potentially create harm to yourself and um, thinking about how you can engage support systems to um, make some changes within your life. And then we do give people resources to think about um, how to help yourself beyond this call because we're a mental health provider supporting you with mental health concerns and we know that sometimes you can't even begin to think about your mental health concerns if you're not getting your ADLs, activities of daily living met, and if you don't know where you're going to sleep that night or you don't know where you're going to get your next meal. And so thinking about how do we engage people with using other services within the community to help support themselves so we can work in conjunction with you for those kinds of things. Um, we know that people can and do recover from mental illness. I don't know how many of you all have taken mental health first aid. I know that it's a, um, a thing that we are trying to encourage within our public safety, um, all public safety officials to engage in. So I'm gonna talk with you a little bit about some of the things that, um, how we can pull in what you've learned from mental health first aid in order to support people when you're going out on calls and thinking about how you can link them to another level of service, such as the New Mexico Crisis and Access Line or the Peer-to-Peer -peer Warm Line. Um, I mentioned the community resources previously, this slide's out of order, sorry. 
Um, this is the network where we go and find resources. It's a statewide network funded by Behavioral Health Services Division. And so this is the service that we go to that has a whole statewide listing of all resources throughout our communities. It is a public resource, so any of you all can also go to this to look for services and um, support people in those moments when you're reaching out to them also. You know, one of the things that Jennifer asked me to come and talk with you guys about is um, opioid use. And so one of the initiatives that we have been funded for is to ensure that we are supporting people who are experiencing substance use in some way, shape, or form. And, and we're really starting at just making sure that people know that naloxone is uh, free and available to all community members and that it's up to all of us to help people prevent, recognize, and respond. So when we're thinking about opioids, we're thinking about encouraging you guys to carry naloxone for overdose reversals because it temporarily reverses the opioid effects. Uh, but we, what we want to remind you guys of is that I'm sure you already know, um, it is temporary. And so even though you distribute naloxone, the opioid can still uptake into the person's system after the Narcan starts dissipating from their system. And so we want to encourage people to get help uh, and get them to the emergency room after naloxone has been administered uh, to prevent overdose from reoccurring. Um, because opioids do occur naturally in our systems, it is safe to administer and safe for people to keep in their homes. So when you're working with people who are engaging in uh, using opioids, whether they're legal or illegal, you know, a lot of, there's a lot of prescribed opioids out there, and that's actually where most of the problem in our communities is happening at, is from legal prescriptions that are being given from our medical providers. And so making sure that if somebody has a prescription of opioids in any way, shape, or form, that they have overdose uh, naloxone available, because what if your kid or your grandkid or your niece or your nephew or your son or your daughter got a hold of it and, and you know, it was an unintentional overdose as a result. So encouraging people to remember to have uh, naloxone on hand. When you distribute naloxone, um, you know, I wish I could see you also. I could see <laughs> if, if this is like, yeah, I already know all this or um, this is great information, but uh, we want to just make sure you're, that you're checking for the signs of overdose and then you're administering naloxone and then again, transferring to the emergency room. So I do have a video here um, that we can watch real quick uh, about naloxone, possibly, maybe. Narcan nasal spray is an emergency treatment for a known or suspected opioid overdose. The appropriate use of Narcan nasal spray can help you save a life. Narcan nasal spray is not a substitute for emergency medical care. As with any drug, you need to be aware of important safety information concerning its use. If you encounter someone who is responsive and you suspect an overdose, first shake their shoulders and shout their name. Ask if he or she is okay. Check for signs of an overdose, unresponsive to touch or voice. Breathing is slow, uneven, or has stopped. Snoring, <laughs> gasping, or gurgling sounds. Fingernails or lips are blue or purple. 
Abruptly ends. I don't know. <laughs> so, um, can you see my PowerPoint again? Just give me a thumbs up, somebody, if you can see it. Okay, thank you. <laughs> um, so, you know, when we're thinking about how do we know if it's an overdose from opioids, it's okay to think about that administering Narcan because if it's not an opioid overdose, Narcan will not do anything to harm the person. So if you suspect it's an opioid overdose in any way, shape, or form, then go ahead and administer naloxone just to protect and ensure the safety of the person. If they don't wake up after administering naloxone, you can wait a couple of minutes and or 30 seconds and give them another dose. If after three doses of naloxone they don't wake up, then that means it's not an opioid overdose and that you need to make sure that you're engaging emergency services because something else is going on. It's not an opioid overdose at that point. So how do you know if it's an overdose occurring within a person? Um, you know, or if they're just really, really high. So they're really, really high when they're slow moving and, and their reactions are, are super slow. It's an overdose if their heartbeat is slow, they're clammy, their fingernails and lips are turning blue. They're just really high if their speech is slowed, but if they have that deep snoring or gurgling that we just heard on the video, or they're very infrequently or not breathing at all, then that's an overdose. If they're sleepy looking, um, but we'll still respond to stimulation when you saw the woman nudging on the person, then that's just that they're really, really high. If they are overdosing, then they won't be able to wake up when you nudge them and try to awake them or when you give them a rub with your knuckles on their chest. Um, if they are really, really high, they'll be nodding, but um, they will still seem as if they are kind of there, even though they're not fully there. Um, if it's an overdose, then they're not responsive to stimulation and they have a super heavy nod 
And um, so those are the signs and symptoms to be looking for when somebody is overdosing for any uh, substance use. Um, you know, we're talking with you specifically about opioids in this particular instance, but these are signs and symptoms of overdose in any way, shape, or form. You know, there's a lot of risk factors that lead to overdoses. Um, and when we're thinking about the community members that you're encountering, they're often using more than one substance. Um, there is a variation in strength in the contents of those substances. You know, was it a pure dose or was it something that was cut with something? And, and how potent is the drug that they're using? How much is their tolerance level increased or decreased? And does that affect um, what's going on with them in this moment? A lot of people have switched from uh, sniffing uh, substances and to injecting substances, which creates a higher risk for people. And, and for you all as well, because you do not know what's on that needle. And so if you are um, in a place where you are encountering needles, make sure that you are uh, brushing the needles away with your feet, the bottom of your shoe, and not touching it with your skin because fentanyl is deadly. And if for some reason fentanyl is on that, then you could die also. So uh, we just want to make sure that we're protecting people with that. Other risk factors that happen with overdoses, including, um, you know, they have extreme weight loss or their livers shut down, uh, impacts our psychological health. And too oftentimes people are using alone, so you don't know that um, there's nobody there to help reverse the overdose if you're using your substances alone. Another thing to think about, which a lot of you probably encounter, is that when people are moving around from community to community, they're getting new dealers and getting different products from different people, which have different various levels of the uh, strength of the substance. So what the amount that they could do in Las Lunas is probably not the same amount that they can do in Española because in Española they probably possibly have a higher um, uh, strength level and that could result in overdose. So you think you're doing the same amount as you've always done, but you're in a different community or you're using with different people and uh, that could result in overdose as well. And then uh, this is a big problem is that the philosophy of our users, people think that they know it all when they're using drugs. And they think, oh, I got this. You know, they don't got to worry about me. I know what I'm doing. I know when it's too much and, and I'm fine. And that's a big problem. Um, so as I mentioned, um, hopefully a lot of you all have taken the mental health first aid um, program. And so I'm going to talk with you about how to think about using the skills that you've already learned in helping people that you encounter and then thinking about engaging them with the New Mexico Crisis and Access Line and peer-to-peer -peer warm line. So, you know, you're assessing for the risk of suicide or harm. You're listening non-judgmentally. You're giving reassurance and information. You're encouraging appropriate professional help, and you're encouraging self-help and other support strategies. So let's start with the A analogy, uh, the action plan. You know, uh, when it comes to uh, people, be aware of the surroundings. Make sure that you're being safe. As I mentioned, don't touch the drug or needles. Uh, be aware that all those individuals may wake up immediately from an overdose they should still receive medical attention. So be aware that the individual may not wish to involve rescue or law enforcement. Of course, I'm talking with law enforcement, but you know, if you show up because somebody else called, they might not be really happy that you uh, um, encountered them. Um, there are uh, laws in place to protect people, but if you're on probation or parole, then those laws don't apply. And so a lot of times people um, that are on probation and parole and engaging with uh, known uh, felons or uh, in illegal activities um, are upset that even though you're saving their lives, 
that they might be encountering jail time. And so that just exasperates and makes the situation worse because they will then be angry upon um, the uh, reversal of the overdose. Or maybe you messed up their high and they're just really pissed off because you interrupted a good time that they were having, even though they are now alive as a result of you being there. So, you know, we want to think about when you're assessing for risk of suicide or harm that we want to encourage people to think about engaging with professional help and peer assistance. So, you know, the New Mexico Crisis and Access Line is available 24-7, 365, and that we have professional counselors. Uh, peer assistance would be who else can help you. Peer assistance would be, you know, calling the peer-to-peer warm line because those are people that are in recovery from their own mental health and substance use problems themselves and people can relate to them and understand how to better support people. Sometimes people are more willing to talk to somebody who's walked in similar shoes. And so that's what the peer-to-peer warm line is there to, for people to engage in. Again, we want you guys to call our crisis line, but if you're encouraging your community members to engage in a service, you know, you might want to have them think about calling the peer-to-peer warm line in order to talk with people who have walked down similar paths as them. When you're thinking about supporting people, uh, the next step in algae is the L. And um, when you're out on scene and you're supporting people, if judgment comes into the conversation, then um, the other person's response will immediately get defensive. If, you, if they feel like you're judging them and you're treating them as if they should feel bad or immoral, even if their judgments, uh, even if they are doing something that's bad and immoral, when we're trying to support people and encourage them to think about helping themselves, then we want to try to limit uh, those in our conversations so that we can best support people in thinking about how to change their behaviors. And um, so we need to show concern, you know, I care and here that's why I'm here because I care if you live or die and I care, you know, that you make a change in your life. So we want to try not to be critical of people. We don't want to label people as addicts. So if you had cancer, would you want to be labeled as some, oh, there's that cancer person, right? You don't want to be labeled as cancer. So other people who are experiencing addiction also don't want to be labeled with their addiction or their mental health concern because it uh, makes them shut down or makes them feel less than and makes them feel not worth it, makes them feel helpless, hopeless. And then that continues the perpetual cycle of mental health concerns. And so we want to make sure that we're treating people as people and trying to minimize the frustrations that we're experiencing when we encounter people who are experiencing mental health and substance use concerns. Because when we um, express frustration, then it uh, limits the availability for people to feel like they can talk with us because they feel like, well, you don't really care anyway, so why bother talking? So um, make sure that you are supporting people. You know, when you're supporting people out on scene, a lot of times you're not actually supporting the person that's having the mental health concern. Oftentimes you're supporting the family member. And so what you want to tell the family members is, you know, I'm not an expert on this, but I can connect you with someone who is, uh, that they might be able to help. And then again, that's when you call the New Mexico Crisis and Access Line. And, you know, here's Roberta and she's experiencing some things with her son. And I just wondered if you could talk with her. You know, we're taking her son to ER right now, but she's really in distress. Can you talk with her? So, you know, think about using the New Mexico Crisis and Access Line, not only for the person of concern, but for the other people that are on scene that might be um, needing these services as well. Um, make sure that they know about Narcan and keeping Narcan on place. What are you going to do if somebody overdoses? Do you have an overdose plan? Um, if you feel you need to use this substance again, no, please try not to do it alone because you could die. If somebody wasn't here with you this time, you probably would have died. So, you know, make sure that people know don't do it alone. 
the next step of algae is encouraging is giving reassurance and information and how many of you all have tried to stop smoking to start exercising to go back to school to um engage in a new diet or you know the atkins or something it's hard to stop eating carbs but it's also hard to stop drinking and using drugs or to think about helping yourself and so sometimes willpower and self-resolve are not always enough so um if you're giving advice like well if you would stop using drugs then you would stop uh, feeling this way that's you know not always enough for somebody to think about changing their their mental health concerns and so you know we want to be reassuring i know this is hard it's not going to be easy, but it's going to be worth it. I know not every, I know you might not want abstinence as a goal, but you know, if you can think about maybe reducing your use for a little bit, um, then maybe you can see that um, your life will begin changing. And so, you know, think about offering them suggestions that are reassuring and helping people to think about um, ways to begin feeling as if they have a team and that they're not alone. And that's where engaging the New Mexico crisis and access sign and the peer-to-peer -peer warm line come into play is that, um, you know, you are not always going to have somebody available to you. But if you need somebody to talk to, you can always call NMCAL and they will pick up. So if that if you can think about engaging with somebody to talk to instead of using or instead of hurting yourself or somebody else. And remembering that we know that, you know, it may take a few attempts um, to change your lifestyle. And just because you uh, use again once doesn't mean that you're a failure, but it means that, you know, you're struggling and you're at least thinking about how do I help myself? And it's okay to stumble as long as you're continuing to try to help yourself and you're reaching out for support systems. So when you're reaching out for support systems, sometimes it just begins with thinking about how to help yourself. When you're thinking about how to help yourself, you're thinking about, you know, maybe identifying other people who could help you. What support groups can you engage with? What activities can you get involved with to help you manage your symptoms? You know, do you need to change who the places that you're going? Are you going and hanging out in bars? Are you going and hanging out in a park? Maybe you want to go, you know, to a library instead. Uh, find strategies that help. Oh, this is young person. I took this from the youth mental health first aid. Find strategies that help the person, uh, no matter what age they are and discuss strategies with a health professional um, and engage the family as well as the person of concern. You know, um, there's a gap in our treatment. 22.5 million Americans age 12 or older needed treatment for a problem related to drugs or alcohol, but only 4.1 million actually received treatment. So when we're thinking about um, the support systems that are out there, a lot of times people say, oh, support's not available. Well, you know, if you never put your name on that waiting list, you're never gonna get support. It might be a few months out, but at least take the steps to get there and encourage people to think about taking those steps to get there because help is available if you're willing to do it. If it, it works, if you work it. Um, and then we want to think about, you know, if, if the self-help strategies aren't working for you, what else could possibly work for you? Maybe you do need some appropriate professional help. Maybe you do need to go and engage in some talk therapy with a counselor. Maybe you need to get on some medication like Suboxone, Methadone, or something to transition off of the medication. Um, maybe you need to engage in a withdrawal management program. Uh, maybe you need to figure out how to uh, get training to make better problem-solving decisions, um, to figure out how to know what kind of social skills you need in order to survive uh, without engaging in the same repetitive negative behaviors. Maybe you need to uh, think about um, 
various other different supports like homeless shelters and various other things. Those are the types of professional help that we would want to encourage people to engage in. Could just be a physical health provider because stigma is often associated with mental health, so they're not willing to go into a mental health professional clinic. Um, so maybe you just want to encourage them to go talk to a doctor because when they're going and talking to a doctor, the doctor can help support them and get them onto an appropriate treatment plan. Um, if the stigma is still there, you know, the other thing that we want to encourage people to think about is engaging in the Mexico crisis and access line and the peer-to-peer -peer warm line. So is that um, you get help in the moment you need it. So you have a doctor's appointment, but it's in two weeks and I need help right now. So that's when you think about calling us. Um, and engaging uh, the appropriate professional support to get you the help that you need in this moment. You know, as um, public safety officials, what we want to ask you all to think about doing is engaging with the New Mexico Crisis and Access Line and taking what we're talking about today and using this um, beyond this call. So thinking about, you know, making sure that you have New Mexico Crisis and Access Line phone number with you, that you have magnets or the wallet cards to give to people when you go on scene and offer them a resource to support themselves beyond the encounter that you're having with them. When you're doing that, um, you're allowing a couple of different things to happen. You are allowing yourself to leave a scene and giving them into a higher level of care without having to transport them to emergency medical services, but engaging them with uh, a counselor, a behavioral health counselor to talk to about what's going on with them and you're engaging them with a way to think about helping themselves. And then that allows you to, to leave the scene without um, you know, them feeling like they're still in distress and they have some sort of support system and that they can help themselves. So uh, we want you to think about engaging people because it helps reduce the stigmas and helps get them to um, the support that they need in the moment that needs them. So we want you guys to think about if your policies and procedures allow you to, try to make that first phone call with them because the hardest part about making a phone call to the crisis line for the person of concern is picking up the phone and making the call. Oftentimes you guys are going on scene because a family member has called. Um, so it's not the person of concern that's calling, but a friend or a mom or a grandma or something. So um, ask if you can make the call from their phone so that then you can leave and they have the phone number and their phone now and they can, um, uh, it allows you to leave since they're not calling from your phone. I know that sometimes people that you encounter have limited minutes, which is why we do answer to text messages on our warm line now. So just um, if somebody is encountering the need to say, oh, I don't have enough minutes, and have them think about engaging with the warm line so that they're still getting support services. So the way that we're going to help people is, as I mentioned before, we're going to de-escalate them, we're going to connect them, we're going to encourage them, and we're going to refer them to resources uh, beyond the call, and we're going to encourage the caller to think about next steps. If you are a caller from Albuquerque or somewhere in Bernalillo County, then we are engaging callers with the community engagement team if they so choose to accept that opportunity. So we ask the caller, would you like to engage with the community engagement team and have a peer support come to your um, to you to talk with you and give you some additional one-on-one uh, -on -one peer support services. So it is the caller's choice, and if the caller uh, chooses to accept that, then we transfer them over to New Mexico Hope, and so New Mexico Hope can then engage the community member. Um, if you are 
have a mobile crisis team in your community, which I know Bernalillo County and Las Cruces and Santa Fe do, um, then when we are calling police, if for some reason we needed to engage police on our end, then we're asking for the mobile crisis team to be deployed so is that the, uh, a trained of behavioral health professionals, if we know there's a community CIT community intervention team, in that community, then we will um, at request that particular service be deployed for that community member. But that's where, again, we need your support services. So we need to know which communities have these programs so that we can make notes in our policies and procedures about how which community has community engagement team, which community has crisis intervention team, uh, which community has um, mobile crisis, and so that we can make sure that we're supporting people in the most appropriate and least restrictive possible way and getting the right people at the right time to people. Um, when people are in a more intensive state and it's not just a routine call, then we are um, uh, thinking about who else can help them in this moment that they need some additional support and encouraging them to reach out to their support systems. And then our emergent calls is when we're engaging public services in some way, shape, or form, or asking the community member if they have a way to get to the emergency room on their own uh, because they're worried, we're worried that they're going to attempt a plan. Um, and you know, this is only about 2% of our calls. And of all of our calls, only about half a percent of our calls are having public service safety called without the caller's consent or knowledge because we're worried that they'll attempt their plan before police arrive. So um, uh, just thinking about the people that are calling us, thinking about you know if you or somebody else you know is worried about someone else, that this program isn't just about the person of concern, but you can also call us because you have a, a fellow officer that you're worried about and you don't know how to help them. So you know, Jack is uh, you know going through a divorce and he really seems to be drinking a lot and I'm not sure what to do to help him. So you can call us and, and find out how to help your fellow officers also. This isn't just about helping the community members that you serve, but it's also about helping you all also. The goal of our program is to ensure that we're gauging people. And um, most of the times it just means being here to hear people and, and allowing them to talk because they get shit on S-H-O-U-L-D so much that uh, they don't feel like they have anybody that will actually listen to what they need. And so a lot of times we're just here to listen to people and support them and encourage them to think about how to help themselves and how to think about the next step that they need to take um, after this call. We document all our calls, we reconfirm safety plans, and your information is protected by HIPAA and high-tech compliance because we are a behavioral health provider. So we do have a lot of people, as I mentioned, that call us frequently, and so callers do have choice to talk to a counselor on our crisis line or a peer support on our warm line. And our warm line is available again from 3.30 to 11.30 to call or from 6 p.m. to 11 p.m. to text. Um, it gives you a person who's been there, it engages people before they're in crisis, and it reduces the people from calling you guys and engaging in the need to have public safety involved because we're encouraging people to think about how to help themselves before they get to the point where you are now needed. So if you're concerned, then reach out and call us. If you have questions, uh, Jennifer and uh, Detective Tinney um, have my contact information and I welcome you to give me an email at any time in order to answer any questions that you have or help support you. This is um, the wallet card that we mentioned. We do also have magnets and posters for you guys to put up in your community. We want to encourage you guys to think about um, 
getting this information out to people. And then here's my phone number if you guys um, did need to reach out to me. And so I just wanna thank you again for allowing me to be a part of your day and to talk with you all. And um, at this time, if you have any other questions, if you have any questions, I am uh, available to answer any questions. And I hope I stayed within my timeline, Jennifer. Thanks, Wendy. What questions does the network have for Wendy? Wendy, I know I have one for you. This is Matt Tenney with APD. I don't know if you can talk a little bit more about this, but I know Doc and I were both a little confused. Maybe we misheard you. But earlier, I thought you said everyone was required to have a bachelor's or a master's to work with you. And I, we were in the impression all the counselors had to have a master's. Is that true or false? So that is true and false. <laughs> when we first launched the program, you did have to have your master's degree to work with us. But because there is a behavioral health shortage in our nation, uh, we had to think outside the box to see how we could um, make sure that we had enough people answering the phones. And so we did begin hiring people with their bachelor's degrees to begin answering some of our non-emergent calls because we do answer calls for 350 accounts nationwide and not all of our calls require a master level clinician. You know, sometimes somebody's just calling in to get uh, community resources. Sometimes callers are calling in to get um, a referral to a program or sometimes they're calling in to do an assessment. Uh, that we do for the provider. Um, um, and so about a year ago, we began hiring people with their bachelor's degree uh, to begin answering uh, calls for our non-emergent um, matters. And if for some reason that the person of concern um, is in distress, then we do transfer them over to a, a master level counselor if a, a bachelor level person answered the, the call. You know, sometimes you might get a master level clinician at the beginning of the call, sometimes you might get a bachelor's level, but if there is a distress situation, you will be immediately transferred to uh, the, the uh, a master level clinician. And then does on that, our warm line, oh, go ahead. I was just gonna ask, does that change how HIPAA applies? No, because they're also behavioral health providers. And I know Randy Sanchez and Rio Riva had a question. He was wondering how can they go about getting the wallet cards? Um, you can go on our website at nmcrisisline.com and go to, I think it's public awareness. And then there's a request form online. You used to always have to call our call center or reach out to me, but we've made this process easier now. So resources, public awareness. And then click here to request materials. And then it'll send you to a a link to submit a request and then our admin will mail them to you. Randy has a tendency to ask for things by the millions. Is that a problem? Millions might be a problem, but hundreds and thousands are not. Okay. He wants 999.99 thousands or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> 
How about a couple? We'll start you with a couple of thousand, and when you need more, then then we'll mail you more. 